Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as usual. I am your host, William Hill, and today is October 5th, 2015, and this is broadcast number 89. Um, One of the things that we've been trying to do on the podcast, which we have neglected to do uh, in many of the episodes prior, is to uh, ask the Lord's blessing on the things that we discuss before we actually discuss them. And so we're going to begin to do that more and more on the podcast, and including um, in today's podcast. So let's pray before we uh, consider uh, faith and practice number 17 with, with Dr. Joseph Piper. So let's pray. Lord, we do. Thank you for this technology you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, utilize these resources to deal with these questions. And we ask that you would bless the time, that you would bless the answers, and that you would bless the listeners as they hear them. And that you would use this podcast to advance your kingdom in whatever way would please you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, as I indicated, today is uh, Faith and Practice uh, edition number 17. It's really hard to imagine 17 broadcast of this nature, but um, uh, really glad to be able to do this. And Dr. Piper, as usual, is in um, a rather warm studio uh, right now. But he is here to answer questions from the listeners, and this is a monthly feature of the Confessing Our Hope podcast. This podcast comes to you and is produced by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And if you want to find out more information about the seminary, you can do so at gpts.edu. Additionally, you can visit the podcast website at confessingourhope.com. should also mention that uh, Dr. Piper has his own website. Now, where many of his writings, uh, video, uh, sermons, lectures, in fact, every sermon that has ever been posted on Sermon Audio is also available there on his website, and you can find that at josephpiper.com. So, today, faith and practice number 17. Dr. Piper, it's good to have you back in the studio Thank um, you, Bill. To, uh, to do these questions, and we have a number of good ones, so I assume we're just going to take them in order. As they, good. as they come. Well, All right. Actually, what we have today is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, I think yeah. at least about <laughs> yeah. three-fourths of the questions all have reference to the Westminster Confession of Faith or catechisms. Yeah, very good. All right, so question number one comes from Anonymous. That, that Yeah, it's Anonymous. Um, it's on the subject of um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, as Dr. Pipe already mentioned, uh, par- uh, Chapter 24, Paragraph 6. On the question of willful desertion and covenantal abandonment, it's a, a term that has been used or has been used in reform circles in recent years. But uh, here's the question. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, paragraph 6, states that although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, Yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. What is meant by, quote, unquote, willful desertion, and what is meant by the phrase covenantal abandonment that is sometimes used in connection with this part of the confession? Okay, Bill and uh, Mr. Anonymous, we thank you, or Mrs. Anonymous, for the question. It's really an important question in our day. We have so much promiscuous divorce, no-fault divorce, and many churches and even Presbyterian Reformed churches kind of just are lying over and playing dead, and we can't do that. The standards, as the question points out, uh, point out that uh, although we should always seek to save marriage, that 
with respect to adultery or willful desertion that cannot be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate. For those two causes, a marriage bond can be uh, dissolved. So what is willful desertion? Well, I think that the Bible speaks to willful desertion in Exodus 21, verse 10 and 11. Now, this is in the context of a man taking um, uh, a wife for his son. Um, if he takes to himself another woman, uh, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. <laughs> now, the scriptural basis for the language of the confession is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's dealing with a believer who two unbelievers are converted, are unconverted. One member of the marriage is converted, wrestling with passages like Nehemiah. <laughs> Does the believer leave the unbeliever? And Paul says, no. If they're content to stay in the relationship, stay married to the unbeliever. If the unbeliever wants out uh, and divorces you, then that is uh, free. And confession takes that as you are free to remarry. Now the question is, does that just apply to that particular situation of a believer married to an unbeliever? Or is there a principle that's established, which Paul often does, uh, as does case law in the Old Testament? He gives, um, he gives the moral principle. And the moral principle is that desertion a willful desertion that cannot be remedied uh, dissolves marriage because marriage is a covenant. It's not some super spiritual thing that uh, can never be violated. It's a covenant. That's why adultery breaks it because the covenant's broken, and that's why desertion can break the covenant. That's the principle Paul lays out. I go back to Exodus then. What does one party owe to the other, particularly what does the man owe to the woman in a marriage relationship, he owes her food and shelter. He owes her uh, the conjugal rights. Uh, and if he doesn't do those things under the discipline of the church, then I believe the elders declare the marriage to be, uh, he has deserted her. So what does this look like? Well, what I'm talking about take can only take place in the context of Two professing Christians, members of a church, and one begins to behave in an extraordinarily sinful manner. Now, let's take the man, for that's normally where desertion lies in these situations. Mm -hmm. And let's say that he is uh, a drunk, and he is not providing uh, financially for the family. Or he is uh, addicted to pornography, and he is not... Uh, providing the sexual relationship for his wife. We'll take those two instances. So this goes to the session, and the session begins the process of, of pastoral oversight, and uh, they challenge the man about this, and he says, yes, I'm doing these things, and so they set up counseling and accountability. In the process of counseling and accountability, the man either refuses the counseling or 
goes through counseling and refuses to make any changes. The session then pursues with him the regular course of church discipline. And he eventually, if he did not repent, would be excommunicated. If they excommunicate him for his failure in the marriage or what we often call contumacy because he will not submit to the spiritual oversight of the church, at that point, the session may declare that desertion has taken place, the covenant is broken, and the woman may divorce the man. This, you see the procedure, though, that's going on here, and I think this fits the language of the confession when it uh, says, can no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate. So the church has tried to remedy the situation, and the guilty party has refused counseling or has refused to do what they've committed to do in counseling, and through a process then of counsel, admonition, censure, eventually excommunication, the person is out of the church, and at which point the session declares the other person may remarry. Now, it's interesting the confession says the civil magistrate as well. In some states, it's very difficult to get a divorce. Mm -hmm. And again, you'll find some very good family judge, uh, family court judges. I have a friend in California who's a family court judge. And they require a good bit before they're going to allow divorce even on, on these areas. So the state can also require counseling. They can't require biblical counseling, but they can require counseling and and. Um, so again, if the state deals with it, even with two non-Christians, and one person refuses the remedy set out by the state, then I think the other person is free to marry. Yeah, very good question. A very good question and um, an answer on a, on a very difficult subject. I, I know as an elder, Dr. Piper, maybe you can comment as we follow up, because we do have probably a little more time on this particular edition than most editions. Um, but you said that last month around. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> just means I'm not a very good prophet. Um, but shouldn't the default position of the session and the elders always be um, work as hard and as, as diligently as humanly possible to save the marriage reconciliation, keep the marriage intact if it's if, in, if at all possible? Yes, I think the default position is problem is sometimes by the time the elders really are aware yeah. of the situation is deteriorated so badly. And one of the parties is so battered in the whole process because they've tried other courses and recourse. Uh, but yes, the default position is save, even when there's adultery, the default position is save the marriage. It's not just automatically, I'm out. Uh, I know of plenty of marriages where adultery has been committed and people repented and they have a better marriage now than they had before. So, uh, yes. Um, on the other hand, kind of a, another side thing here is the necessity of good pastoral care and church discipline. Mm -hmm. Most of the cases that I end up giving counsel on are where they are because sessions have not behaved as godly shepherds of the sheep and have not exercised proper oversight, have allowed these things to fester and to uh, grow back up a step. At Greenville Seminary, we're very highly committed to pastoral care and family visitation, both by ruling elders and by the pastor. And I think most of our students, our graduates, are committed to that as well. In fact, I tell them if they don't, I'll come back from the dead and haunt them. <laughs> it used to be a, dis a distinguishing factor 
in uh, Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Yeah. Just yeah. family visit. We were the, the physicians of the soul that made house calls. And now it is uh, has fallen to the wayside. For a number of years, my wife and I were at a church, and periodically we'd get a couple of these esoteric prayer requests. we got a couple of families here, and, and they're about to get divorced. And I'm telling the elders, you know, if you've been in their lives 10 years ago, you might not be making this prayer request today. And so the elders have got to be in the family. The pastors got to be in the family. We've got to be asking loving but personal questions about the marriage. And uh, we can actually stop a lot of this stuff on the front end. Then, when it does begin to happen, we can't play chicken and go put our head in the sand. We've got to deal honestly and faithfully, and that means church discipline, which is for reclamation, not for, de- yep. for destruction. Right. Yep. Well, well said, and he went right where I was going to go. If he didn't go there, uh, the whole question of elder visits and shepherding in that way, uh, to head these things off before they become a crisis. All right, the next question comes in from Jesse, writing from Quakertown, Pennsylvania. Uh, She asks a a, a question regarding the marks of the true church, and she says, I've noticed from reading the Reformed Confessions that it appears that the Westminster Confession and the Belgic Confession have different takes on what identifies the true church. The The Westminster Confession of Faith states that the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of, uh, of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children. While the Belgian Confession says, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. These two explanations of the church raise some questions for me. One, the Belgic, defa- the Belgic definition appears to exclude Baptist and maybe even Lutheran churches from being considered true churches. Is this a misreading of the Belgic Confession? That's the first question. Do you want me to go ahead with the second question? Go ahead. All right. Two, is the Belgic creating a stricter definition than the Westminster Confession of Faith with its mark to the true church, or is everything that the Belgic says regarding sacraments and discipline rolled up into the professed the true religion statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Very good. Now, I just wonder how you know that Jesse is a lady. We have a couple of students named Jesse. You're, you're absolutely right. That was an assumption on my part, and I apologize if I misspoke. Um, so anyway, thank Jesse, you for good correction. I'm very glad that you're reading the Confessions and the other Reform Standards. Um, but you're not comparing apples with apples. You're comparing apples with oranges. You've taken the definition of a visible church from the Westminster Confession 25.2. Now, that's the definition of the visible church. You compare that with the Belgic definition of the marks of a church. So the paragraph you really want to compare is 25.4. In the Westminster, this Catholic church hath been sometimes more and sometimes less visible, and the particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, According as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. Now that's what we compare and contrast with. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. 
It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. Now, normally the contrast that's made here is between that third one, the discipline of the church. But I believe that that is included in Westminster when it talks about the uh, ordinances administered in public worship perform more or less purely in them. That necessitates church discipline. You cannot have the proper administration of the ordinances in public worship without church discipline. So most people would say that they have the same marks of the church. In fact, Westminster would be a bit stricter because it calls for a worship reform more or less purely in them, which makes me wonder today about a number of our, quote, Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Uh, have they lost one of the marks, of, at least confessional marks, of the church if they are uh, conservative Presbyterian churches? As um, to, is Belgic more strict here? I, I don't think that they intend by the language pure preaching and pure administration of the sacraments to rule out Baptists and Lutherans. Most Reformed people have had a, a Catholic approach, by that a, a proper ecumenical approach to other non-Reformed denominations. So we wouldn't deny that they are churches. Uh, I don't think the Dutch churches would deny that they are churches. Now where they are more strict is the uh, Reformed Dutch Continental Reformed churches require church members to uh, subscribe to the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism. Whereas Presbyterian churches historically have done what Sammy Miller called the doctrine of Presbyterian liberality. Mm -hmm. So Presbyterianism requires a credible profession of faith, which means a person must have a good grasp of the gospel and a manifestation of the commitment to personal holiness. As the letter of the law in the uh, uh, Continental Reformed churches, a person has to believe in the distinctive, so the, the quote, five points of Calvinism, infant baptism, things like that. That we just have been wrestling with this with the mission project because we wanted to work with a, a church from the other background, the United Reformed Churches, and we really couldn't get together on, we would receive a member who is willing to submit and study, but is not yet convinced of infant baptism, and they wouldn't. So they're more strict in practice, but I don't think any of them, at least I don't have not heard any of them say that the Baptists are not true churches. So I wouldn't interpret the language uh, that way. So there's really not uh, any great difference here, I think, between the between the two standards. Good question, and thank you for writing, and thank you for listening uh, to the program. And let me take this uh, opportunity before we move on to um, a question I'm really looking forward to the answer of, frankly. <laughs> um, it was a, well, we'll get to that. If you are um, an avid listener to the program, you know by now that we um, not only take questions for this uh, for this program, the Faith and Practice segment, uh, where Dr. Pepe answers questions like he's doing right now uh, through the form that's on the website. Uh, we also uh, have opened that up a little bit. Um, if you want to use the 140 characters or less question format on Twitter, uh, you can do that. It's very simple. Just tweet to us at GPTS Podcast and be sure to use the hashtag GPTSFP, which stands for Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, Faith and Practice. Uh, you can do it that way, um, and I follow that 
feed pretty carefully and will note the questions. In fact, we just got one not too long ago uh, for today's program, and we're gonna, we'll try to get it in on the back end. But um, if you want to utilize that process, then by all means do that. Um, and again, I follow it pretty closely. However, the preferred method is to use the form on the website at confessingourhope.com. It's just much easier for me to keep track of them that way. So that's just a little um, housekeeping for those who listen regularly. If you're a first-time listener, now you know how to do it as well. Um, so there you go. Now, the next question. <laughs> uh, the reason I laugh, a joke, I laugh a little bit about it is because I actually debated this issue as one of my assignments in my first year here at Greenville Seminary, Dr. Tony Curto, who is the apologetics professor, um, he uh, had us do a debate on these types of topics uh, that the scriptures seem to create, as it were, conundrums for us as it relates to issues. Now, he's Dr. Pipe was going to, I said, seems to. No, no, uh, no, was, your vocabulary just never oh, seems to amaze me. Yeah, conundrum. Well, a conundrum. It's a conundrum. But it I'm going to read the question. Peggy, uh, Peggy Martin uh, Martine, I think is how uh, yeah. her last name is is, is spelled, uh, says that she listens often. He, I, I did it again. <laughs> anyway. A long-time listener writes in on the issue of Rahab and Joshua in Joshua 2, 1 to 24, especially verses 4 and 5. Here's the question. Rahab lied to the king of Jericho, verse 4 and 5. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, this is a quote right from uh, Joshua chapter 2. Now, here's the question. Is lying ever acceptable and not sinful? Are there certain circumstances that would make lying acceptable? If so, what are those circumstances? If not, then why are we told in Hebrews 11.31 that by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies? Was Rahab a Christian, unquote, quote, unquote, a God-fear, a believer at the time that she lied about the two men? How does this fit with the Ninth Commandment? Thank you very much for your thoughts on this incident. Also, we very much appreciate all the faith and practice segments that you have done. And we thank you for listening uh, additionally as well. Thank you for the question. Yes, Peggy. Thank you very much. Very, very good question and very important. They're basically... In uh, Reformed Ethics, three answers, I think, to the question, or three different ways that the question would be answered. I think there's only one answer. But anyway, uh, the first is John Murray would take the position that one is never uh, to use a lie even in defense of innocent life. And so he would say that um, Rahab should have said, yeah, they're lying up here under the mat, and that Corey Tim Boom in her day should have said that, uh, yeah, they're under the table. Uh, the other uh, side of that is that it's proper to uh, answer a question in a way, it's not the other side, it's kind of the shade of this. Don't lie, but look for providential ways to answer the question that would hide the truth. So, for example, I just said they're under the table. Literally, that was said in one instance because there was a trap door under the table. Oh, yeah, we got shoes in the house. They're all hiding under the table. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And so, of course, the soldiers you know, laughed. And, and uh, then the third is that all deceit is not lying. 
parallel is that all killing is not murder. That would be Dabney's position, uh, Rush Dooney. That's basically where I am. I, I don't see a lot of difference between ethically between one and two because at the end of the day, if you if you look at the logic catechism, even words spoken truly that intend to hide the truth are a violation. They're, they are they are lying. And so, yes, technically, I told the truth, but my purpose in speaking the truth was to deceive you so that you would not look for those Jews. Now, the Dabney Thornwell position is that, uh, as I said, all deceit is not lying. And we have a number of biblical examples. Now, the two that are easier to explain away is the one you gave, that, well, by faith she acted. And, and obviously, Hebrews says that by faith, so she was converted by that point. She had been converted. She knew that Jehovah was the true God. Uh, uh, but that didn't excuse her sin. I mean, you know, Samson's also put in the roll call of the, of the faithful. So um, it doesn't mean that the Bible commended her. The other thing they say with the midwives in Egypt is that they spoke the truth. And that, yes, uh, Hebrew women did give birth more quickly. So the midwife would delay getting there. And they would, she said that they, they just had their children before we got there. So those cases could be explained in that manner. But the one that really um, has always puzzled me is Zedekiah, uh, who asked Jeremiah to come and uh, meet with him in Jeremiah chapter 38. And he asks his questions, and Jeremiah answers the questions. And then Zedekiah says in verse 24, Let no man know about these words, and you will not die. But if the officials hear that I've talked with you and come to you and say, Tell us now, what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us and will not put you to death. Then you ought to say to the, I was presenting my petition before the king not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. Mm. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. So he reported to them in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded. And they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. Now he seems there as a prophet who just delivered a word from God to do exactly what the king asked. Then we also have the instances where God uh, leads the people to uh, lay out an ambush. An ambush is uh, a deceit. Uh, it tricks people into thinking one thing so that they expose themselves uh, to danger and you ambush them and hmm. uh, kill them. So uh, Dabney, Rashtuni, and others will say that in the case where one is defending the innocent and where if one had in his power the right to kill the perpetrator, that that person who's forfeited has forfeited his right to truth because he intends to do evil with the truth. And thus, as killing in self-defense is not murder, Deceit and self-defense are the defense of other innocent lives is considered not lying. 
Hmm. That's my position. I don't know what I'll, we'll hear now. What Mr. Hill's position? Oh, oh no, we won't because I because we'll spend the next thirty minutes talking about it. Um, and we gather his position is just the opposite. Well, it, 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 I do take a different position from Dr. Piper, with all due respect. Um, I, I don't presume to know. Oh, that's fine. You may do that. Um, a lot of people do. I, you know, um, Dr. Piper is a man that I greatly respect, and and both in his scholarship and his knowledge of the Bible. And so I do so lightly. I don't do so lightly. Um, but I do think Rahab um, blatantly uh, lied. I, it was a direct question asked uh, under duress, no doubt. Um, I don't think the commendation in, Matthew, in Hebrews 11 nor in James uh, references the, the actual act of the lie, but rather that they, she obeyed by faith what the spies had told her to do regarding the scarlet cord. Hebrew, oh, James might. Well, it might. might. It might. Yeah, so James is a bit clearer than Hebrews. I, and then, but anyway, but let's the, leave it there. She's got the three positions. But the the flip side for me, and and practically, is you know I have a wife, and um, boy, I tell you, I, I guess the Lord would give grace in times of that kind of duress, where I was forced to answer honestly if someone was seeking to harm my wife. I'll put I mean, it this these way. are practical type issues. You have a gun issues. in your house. If you had a home invasion, <laughs> well, that's true. you would shoot them. If you didn't get your gun out in time, you, if you could have shot them, don't tell them your wife's hiding in the secret closet. Right, right, right. right. Yep. But great question, one that has come up um, often, and, and I suspect we'll, we'll keep rustling through it. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it's in the scriptures for us to rustle mm-hmm. through. Yeah, all the questions today except this next one were designed to get me in trouble. So um, I'm glad we got one pastoral question that I think is safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. It's good to interact with some good. of these, these things that's what and, we want to do. And, and keep writing them in. But um, but again, uh, Peggy, thank you. So, and Peggy, you can read in Principles of Conduct, John Murray's position. Mm-hmm. And then in Dabney's uh, discussions, you can find his position. It's probably the two best um explanations of the two opposite positions sure all right well pressing on mike writes in from um, chattanooga tennessee where uh, the last pca general assembly was held um he writes in on um there's actually three questions here uh do you, do you want to take those quickly uh all three let me read them all three yeah or take them one at a time do them one at a time all right, let's do one at a time question one um most if not all of your students are better acquainted with <sighs> Better acquainted with as a with theo- you with as a with you as a theologian, systematician, and professor than they are with you as a pastor. What is your fondest memory of your time as a minister in the local church? Thank you, Hutch. Uh, that's a. I don't like favorite questions. My grandchildren will call me. They're doing something in school. Papa, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite? I don't have a lot of favorites. <laughs> I have so many wonderful <laughs> memories. Uh, pastoral memories that it's just I had uh, the privilege of pastoring for about 21 years uh, I was almost seven years in Mississippi ten and a half years in Houston and then actually 25 years when we I went to California to teach we started a church and I pastored another seven and a half years there and let me just say in passing that uh, that is a mark of Greenville Seminary uh, we now require that every uh, faculty member who comes this hard has had at least five years of pastoral experience because we're not a graduate school. Uh, our intention is to train men to be pastors and it needs a man who's been a pastor to uh, take these academic subjects, which are very important and we don't 
and you weigh less than the academic rigor, uh, but to look at it from a pastoral perspective. Uh, you know, I um, to see children make their profession of faith, to see a couple's marriage saved because one of them was committing adultery and through the process they were converted, or to see young couples come to reform faith and get to do their premarital counseling and marry them, to be with some glorious saints when they are approaching death. Mm. Uh, there's just no better place to be than in the pastorate. Uh, I love the pastorate. I love most parts of the pastorate. Uh, as any calling, there are difficult things that one does not like as much. But um, No, they are uh, It's just a great place to spend one's life if God has uh, has called you there. But I often tell my wife I've been very happy if God left us in our little small rural church um, where we started life and started ministry. In some ways, uh, the first three years there were very difficult. Uh, people left the church both over uh, my racial convictions, which uh, were quite different from uh, what Mississippi was in those days, uh, and over uh, Reformed faith. Uh, and yet I can also tell you that it's the gospel that changes people. And that church now, uh, anybody is free to come there and worship and to mm. be a member. And, uh, it's the gospel that does that. So, uh, yeah, I get really nostalgic thinking about the pastorate. So I don't miss the late nights. I don't miss uh, session meetings that go till midnight. I don't miss all the you don't catch nearly as much criticism at the seminary as you do in, in the church. I've been reading the biography of, of James Waddell, Alexander, Archbishop Alexander's son, who was a beloved preacher, and yet he quotes some of the letters that he got <laughs> from disgruntled hearers or members of his church, you know, and people haven't changed. So, but it's great. That's why I'm here, though, is I want to see men that are well-equipped to go into the pastoral ministry. And I see my role here as well as pastor. I do want to pastor uh, students, faculty, I need to do a better job, but that's what I want to do. Um, again, start talking about books. Well, we didn't really ask that All question. Right. I'll, I'll just do it while I have the floor. What sure. books did you find most beneficial for your own development as a pastor? <laughs> you know, um, what year is it? <laughs> systematic theology to get that foundation. Uh, but uh, in terms of pastoral theology, uh, Bridges, the Christian minister, Thomas Watson's books on the, on the Lord's Prayer and, and uh, the law, Ryle on holiness, uh, Spurgeon lectures to my students, and then a number of pastoral manuals that were published, Bonner uh, and, and others. So... I encourage men to read those classics and then to read biography. Again, in this Alexander biography that I've been reading to write an endorsement for it, and by the way, I highly recommend it by uh, uh, Jim Garrison that will be coming out this fall. Um, Alexander loved biography as well. And uh, so, good Christian, we got a lot of biography. It's a good thing to read at night or Sunday afternoons. And then the third question is, it seems a, a, there's a real dearth of good tracks that are written from a reform perspective. Could you point us to some good 
evangelistic resources, tracts, pamphlets, etc. For those moments when you're providentially hindered from being able to have a conversion with an unbeliever. I still think that John Blanchard's ultimate questions is uh, just one of the best things to put into the hands of uh, people. Uh, and it's in every language imaginable as well. So if you're traveling in a foreign country, you pack up some. I learned that from uh, um, my good friend, uh, Patty Cook. Uh, and then a um, friend of mine the seminary, J.D. Wetterling, uh, wrote, um, and I can't remember the right title of it now, but it's great. It's like the six no's of the Bible or something like the six knots of the Bible. I've used that with guys at the Y and, and no man can come unto me, those types of things. Hmm. Um, John Benton coming to faith in Christ. Very good. Shorter than ultimate questions. Little banner of truth. Uh, paperback. And then I just came across one. I was in Grand Rapids uh, a week ago with a young pastor, Brian uh, Knapp before. And he's written a, a very fine little track on uh, the gospel. You can get that from him at Dutton, D-U-T-T-O-R-N, uh, United Reformed Church. And his elders are making that track available to others as well. So uh, there's four. J.D. Wetterling, I uh, don't remember the title, but if you will uh, send me an email about that, I would uh, get uh, hook you up with him, and he can supply you with that. Maybe I uh, won't say yeah, these are great questions. I mean, I, I, I echo what Dr. Piper said about the autobiographies or writing or reading biographies. Um, I know, I know, Mike, you didn't ask me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> I read the uh, question, so he has to give us a minute. Yeah, so B.M. Palmer's biography, um, I've been reading through it. it it's it, it, it's done a number of great things uh, for my own soul, um, and it's also shown me how far we've fallen. Um, as a church, as he Jim ministered, Jim McCarthy said the same. Th is reading it as well. Yeah, same, same thing. As how uh, just parish model ministering to people in the town where the church is planted, whether they come to his church or not, he didn't care. Um, the man was committed to bringing the gospel to people, sitting with people till they, till all hours of the night. Didn't matter. Um, just, just that's just one point of it. Um, it's it's a fantastic um, biography, and um, I was saddened to read actually on the website of the church that he used to be the senior pastor for all the way back in the day, uh, that they are embarrassed uh, by him as that they he was their pastor. Um, that's how far that church has fallen as well. So it's a good reminder to be on our guard because uh, one generation away from apostasy. So, uh, but great, great questions, very practical and um, uh, very helpful. All right, uh, Trent writes in, uh, this, is, this comes through Twitter. Um, and uh, so he's one of the first to utilize the Twitter process, um, which makes it great because uh, uh, it's short. So here's the question. Yeah, it might be short. Andrew. But yeah, the question's short, but the answer I don't think is, is short. But here's the question. Uh, what scriptural basis do we have for not believing in the establishment principle as laid out in the original Westminster Confession of Faith and Belgic Confession? All right, Trent, you're going to pay for this. I can assure you that right now. But anyway, it is an important question. Just, just so people know, uh, Dr. Piper knows Trent, um, so <laughs> just well, want Trent's that to a be student. clear. That's be how clear. he's going to pay for it. Right. I'm going to him right. a really hard paper. He actually is one of my <laughs> student assistants. He works for me, too. So uh, The section that he is referring to is in the Confession on the uh, Civil Magistrate, and that's Chapter 23. And in the original confession, 
Paragraph 3. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order, that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. For the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods to be present at them, call them to be present at them, and to provide for whatsoever is transacted in them to be according to uh, according to the mind of God. That last part, if you go back, if you know anything about what was called the five ecumenical councils, they were uh, the great council of Nicaea that really standardized the biblical statement on the deity of Christ was called by the Emperor Constantine uh, because the church was embroiled in this era. Now when the American Presbyterian Church adopted the confession, they first did so with a provision that uh, they didn't hold to all of that and eventually it, it was uh, edited and it reads this way, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So we've got agreement there. Or in the least interfering in matters of faith. Yet, this is where they refine the language of uh, the old confession. As nursing fathers, it is in that language from Isaiah, it is the duty uh, of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons whatever shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions uh, without violence or danger. And Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government discipline in his church. No law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any nomination, Christian nomination according to their own profession and belief. It's the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people mm. in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. So the American confessions try to take into account that uh, uh, the Presbyterian Church was one of many different uh, denominations uh, in in the colonies, uh, whereas in the uh, old version, they basically have the idea of a state church. Donald McLeod, in an article, The Establishment Principle Today, wrote, historically, the establishment principle has meant the official state recognition of Christianity as the national religion, Endowment of the church by the state and civil government having clearly a defined responsibility with regard to religious matters. This responsibility extended to promoting the peace and unity of the church, ensuring the due observance of gospel ordinances, and even the suppression of blasphemy and heresy. Mm. Now, as he points out, that was possible in a world such as 17th century Scotland, where Christianity was the only religion, and it was only one Christian denomination, and politicians and churchmen shared the same faith. 
He then asked the question, what can the establishment principle mean in a society where Christians are a minority? The church is broken up into literally thousands of denominations and political power lies in the hands of a determined secularism. So that's the, I think he puts the question well in contrasting what the establishment principle initially was. It was a state uh, protected church, often a national church. So Christianity is a national religion, and there was only one church in those states. And so the Church of Scotland was the church, uh, the official church of Scotland. The church of England was the official church of England. Uh, later, um, uh, non established churches were allowed to uh, exist, say, in England after the return uh, when William and Mary came to the throne. Um, and these independent uh, things then didn't have all the same privileges that the state church had for many decades. So the issue has been has come back up today, and I've uh, done little research, and I've talked to a couple of uh, historians as well, trying to get uh, my thoughts around exactly um, what's going on in the mind of the discussion. This will probably generate more questions. That's good. Um, I think that uh, for the most part, I agree with the American version of the, uh, I agree with all the American version of the civil magistrate. Uh, is there uh, a greater role for the civil magistrate in the protection of the church? One of the areas that I've sought to uh, look at this exegetically, and let me just say that it's worthwhile to study the uh, proof text in the Old Confession. Hmm. And then we have to realize is they are all dealing with the church that was a theocracy. And I think that the Confession says that we are to take the principle of equity, that we've got to realize is that the church is no longer a theocracy, in that <coughs> the church and state were one. <laughs> after Moses. And then the Davidic kingdom, clearly one with a king. That's not the case. Uh, and never will be the case again. Because uh, one of the important features is the church is now uh, transnational, transgenerational, transgeographical. And that's good. So the church will never be identified uh, with uh, any one particular government, nor will it ever become, and I think the whole confession is very clear about this. There's two swords to use uh, Augustine's language, and one and, and Luther. One belongs to the church, one belongs to the state, and they must not interfere with each other. And nobody that's holding to the establishment principle today, I would think, is saying that the state is responsible to uh, enforce church discipline uh, with the sword. But are they saying that we should suppress by law um, heresy and false religion. Well, that would be different. Uh, let that one hang out there for a second. That would be different than the church executing uh, people who would be uh, heretics, as Servetus was executed in Geneva and many other countries, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, uh, executed uh, people they deemed to be heretical. But I go to Nehemiah and Ezra trying to look at how the church should function in a um, less than theocratic society. 
what I find is, is that the state did give tax privileges to uh, the church. And the state coffers did help uh, rebuild the temple. And so it's looking for the principle of, of equity there. I have no problem with the fact that uh, people get tax uh, allow breaks for giving to church and that ministers have special uh, tax advantages. Um, I think that there is a biblical precedent uh, for those things. Now, if we lost them all tomorrow, uh, that would be a very good sifting for ministers and for uh, people that give. When you give as much to the church, if there's not a write-off for what you're giving to the church, will you still be as generous? And I think God might try us by letting us slip into mm, mm-hmm. into that type of uh, difficulty. I have no difficulty taking advantage of every tax allowance that the government gives me. Now, let me say some things I, I happen to believe. One is, I think that the moral law in the Ten Commandments should be the basis of civil code. And the moral law addresses outward action. The moral law, of course, addresses the heart, and it's not the responsibility of the civil code to address motives and heart. In other words, hate crimes are uh, absurd. Mm. Uh, that's not the state's responsibility. Uh, but murder uh, is. If we quit trying to worry about whether it's a hate crime or not, and if you deliberately murdered somebody, you should be put to death, well, then we would, um, I think, be a lot better on. Now, I'm also willing to apply the first four commandments to civil code. This is where I'll get in trouble. <laughs> McLeod points out, for example, that the, what we call it in America the blue laws were for the well-being of society, not just for the church. And that um, uh, there are social and uh, cultural benefits of the Sabbath laws that forbid uh, trade and commerce to be carried on uh, on the Lord's Day. And so I'm an advocate of those laws. Our culture was much better off when we had uh, had those laws. Public blasphemy. None of us should have to drive down the road and see a billboard with... um, uh, taking God's uh, name in vain in some specious way that uh, God must love Texas because he made a sunset arm <laughs> and, and stuff like right. that. I mean, our public, uh, you know, it's not a matter of freedom of speech, never was in our country, that one could uh, take God's name in vain publicly. Now, you get to the first two commandments, and that's where you get some difficulty. I'm willing to say, and this will get me definitely in trouble, is that um, if, in fact, the uh, majority of the people in a country were converted and thus the law could be passed, that uh, the Christian, uh, whatever your denomination is, let's say an Apostle Creed Christian church would be allowed to function. Others could function, but they wouldn't get the same benefits. So you might have uh, different false religions, uh, but they... Uh, they would not be given the same, and particularly in public, uh, uh, there would be no allowance of promotion of, of public heresy. Now, that's you know that could never happen without uh, a wholesale revival and reformation. But it once was the case uh, in many of of our uh, of our what are now states in the United States. Uh, regardless of that, when our American Constitution. So there should be no establishment of religion. It meant federally. 
after the Constitution was adopted, there were still states that had established religion. I'm not in favor of that, of one denomination being favored in, uh, in that manner. On the other hand, and McLeod points this out as well, uh, we've got to realize that the, um, whether you're an establishment or non-establishment principle, uh, secularism of society is a curse because secularism is a religion. Yep. And we allowed them to push God out of the public life. We've simply allowed the establishment of godless uh, Unitarianism. And so I think that we uh, don't roll over and play dead there. Uh, now, I'm for a long time been opposed to prayer in the public schools because it's no longer prayer. But back in our schools in the South, when the prayer was offered to the triune God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, I was not at all opposed to that. And I'm actually today opposed to public school period. But because of the... And, and Dabney, again, in his prescience, wrote about this 100 and 200 years ago almost right. now, about the danger of public education. So I've rambled a good bit, Trent, but this is probably some food for, for thought. Um of why we're where we are and what is the role of the, I don't think the, the state, though, should be protecting um, a particular denomination, uh, nor would I think you think that uh, as, as well. Now, uh, our church historian pointed out to me, Dr. Wilborn, that when the Scottish church adopted this, they did put in this qualification. The magistrate could call the church to have a synod to address an issue, and the church did not have to do it. Hmm. And that he could tell them to stop, and the church was not bound to stop. So even when the Scottish church adopted this language of the magistrate calling a synod, they did so to keep the independence of the Scottish church. Hmm. That's an interesting point that I yeah, didn't know. It just I know we're short. We're, good, we're, we're as usual, we're running short on time, even though I said we had plenty of it. Well, we only have two more questions. Let's go. Um, just, but I want to follow up. Um, just you know, right now in, in the United States, are there denominations that hold to this? And those who would hold to the original Westminster standards would hold to the establishment principle then? Well, I've not been following the recent discussion, but I know that when the Free Church formed in the 1840s in Scotland, they were no longer part of the Church of Scotland. They still held the establishment principle, although they weren't the state church. Right. So I would think that some of, I mean, for example, the Free Church continuing here in Greenville, I think they would hold the establishment principle. Okay. Uh, McLeod does the best job I've seen of trying to work. I mean, his, you can just go on uh, Google and type in establishment principle, and his was the first article that came up. And he's really wrestling with what, because he believes it. Yep. He's wrestling with what it means today in British culture, which is even more secular than American culture. So that at least gives you an idea of where some of the modern thinkers are with the principle. And I'll try to include the link to the article um, in the notes for the program. Uh, on the confessingourhope.com website just to make it easier if you're listening in your car and have no way of writing any of that down um, maybe forget about it later on all right our final question for today there's actually uh, another question but we, we're, might get to we might or might not get to it. we have five minutes remaining um, in this particular this broadcast but the question comes in from um, William Tejeda and he writes um, again on Twitter uh, thank you for using that um, that process, but he writes, what righteousness does Deuteronomy 6.25 refer to? Is this the sort of righteousness with which Zechariah and Elizabeth were described? 
William, thank you for the question. I think you're also the publisher of uh, uh, the Reformation uh, prints, so you can send some over this direction as well. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm glad you brought this question up. I really wanted to get to it today because I think in our, our Reformed Church, we uh, have focused uh, on, on imputed righteousness to the detriment of inherent righteousness. And they're both a part of the salvation process. First place, particularly when the standards talk about salvation, they're not just talking about conversion or justification, they're talking about sanctification and glorification. And the Savior tells us, blessed is the man that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That can't be justification, because mm -hmm. that is a state that's completed. And so, because of union with Christ, there are two things that flow out of that. There's the imputed righteousness of justification, twofold act by which God pardons all of our sins and legally constitutes us righteous. And we can be no more legally righteous ever than we are at the moment of our justification. And that is our acceptance then with God. But out of that union with Christ that brought us to faith comes also the seed of righteousness. The Spirit of Christ is indwelling us and he is transforming us from the inside out. And so in a case like Deuteronomy 6, it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. There is a righteousness that we as Christians want to grow in. It is sanctification. And it is equally important. And we will not, we will not go to heaven without it. Pursue that sanctification without which no man shall see God. So... It's our justification that gets us into heaven, but without sanctification, we're not getting into heaven because they come from the same seed. Yeah, very good question, and appreciate, again, uh, uh, listening uh, to the program. We have, um, just for Dr. Piper's uh, knowledge, we have two and a half minutes remaining, okay. um, which gives me no time to wrap up. So my, <laughs> my suggestion is, because I'm wordy, <laughs> I'll just get ahead of them for once. Um my suggestion is we leave the last question until next time. Um, it, it comes from the same individual anyway, so we'll just do that. It's actually better for the individual. I'll explain later Okay. Uh, why we do that. Um, I'll explain that in a little bit. But let me take the last couple of minutes to talk about something that uh, generally I, I wait way too long to do um, in the year. Uh, but we just had our staff meeting here at the seminary um, this morning, and we're beginning already. I know it's only October but we're beginning to already think about March of 2016. Uh, we do every year a spring theology conference, and this year the topic is? Marriage, family, and sexuality. Yep, and so what we're going to be doing, as I've tried to do in the past and, and have frankly not done a great job of doing, is inviting some of the speakers on to talk about this subject. And this is a hot subject right now. I, I, watch the news, pay attention. It's, it's a big issue. And uh, so there's going to be topics at the conference uh, coming up in March of 2016 relating to family worship, uh, relating to uh, children, um, relating to, and I have the email right in front of me, or at least I did. The nature of marriage, purpose of marriage, yep. homosexuality, transgender, husband-wife relationship. Sexuality and worldview, homosexuality and same-sex marriage by Gary Bates. And so th these are some very good subjects, practical subjects. Uh, so start thinking about uh, making plans uh, to be at our conference. Um, it's always a great time of fellowship besides, but it's great lectures, great material. 
Um, RHB Reformation Heritage Books comes in every year and does our bookstore, and it's it's packed with loaded. It's just loaded with great material. So at great prices. At great prices. So so make plans. Start thinking about it now, and and we'll of course continue to announce uh, these things uh, in the future. But as always, Dr. Pipe, it's great to have you in to answer these questions uh, today. And uh, send your questions. Keep sending them uh, to us. Uh, go to the website, confessingourhope.com. Next week on the program, we're going to have Dr. Ryan McGraw on to talk about his subject and a little booklet he wrote on self-denial. Uh, it's a great booklet. I read it. It was painful to read, but also very edifying. So um, look forward to that uh, next week with Dr. Ryan McGraw. Until then. We do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary.